Welcome to Leveraging Leadership, where we unpack the art of business leadership. I'm your host, Emily Sander, C-suite executive turned leadership coach. And today we are talking about conflict resolution. And we're joined by guest Christine Scott. And Christine, I'll tell you a little bit about her to get us started here. She began her career in social services and noticed in the heat of tough situations, she would either overreact or freeze. And so she got really curious if she could do this better. And this started a 20-year exploration that evolved into her becoming a conflict resolutionary. The conflict resolutionary. I love that. And she is now the CEO of Seattle Conflict Resolution, helping clients like the Seattle Space Needle and other office teams not freak out when things get tough, and instead giving them what they need to be firm and friendly in the face of crisis. And I think this topic of conflict resolution, and just interpersonal skills in general in the workplace is a huge one. We've all come across it, right? We've all seen the team meeting where two people are just coming at things with different perspectives, and it just devolves into something not good for anyone. Or we've been part of it ourselves, and we've been in that situation, and it gets escalated, and we feel like we're right, and something within us rises and it makes it so we're not ourselves. And it's like, oh no, what just happened? So having some knowledge on how to approach these situations better or getting our mindsets right going in and then having some tools, some practical tools when we're in that situation, when we're in that conversation is just incredibly helpful. It was great talking with Christine. Uh, I was personally looking forward to this one because conflict resolution is something that um, I've come a long way on. It didn't come naturally to me in the beginning. We'll just put it that way. Uh, but I've worked on it over the years. And it's something that, like anything, it's a skill that you can learn and practice and get better at. And I think it's beneficial for all, all of us to try to learn more about it and get some more tools in our tool belt, so to speak, about how to approach these things. So I really enjoy learning more about this. I hope you do too. So here is the conversation with Christine Scott. Christine, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Emily. Thank you. Awesome. So I'm excited to talk to you because this topic hits home for me because early in my career, my strategy for conflict resolution was avoidance. So I would just avoid any conflict whenever it came up. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. So just starting there, what advice would you have for people who are like, I run for the hills <laughs> when there's a conflict in my midst? Well, you're in good company. There was a survey that was done recently that found that of people who are staring down a difficult conversation at work, only 10% of them believed that it was worth trying. Wow. Like that they have had such bad experiences with conflict, kind of like my own, where I'm just kind of going, no matter what I do, I screw it up. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> right? Like that is a common response. You just, you you feel so disheartened. And if you go into a situation expecting that, then it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. It does. It does. So, so I, I encourage people, look at conflict, not how we have been taught about it, because we've been taught that conflict is a win-lose, right? Mm -hmm. And just like when you're getting ready for any other competition where there's only one winner, you go in with a certain nervousness. You go in with a certain like dominate or be dominated feeling. Mm. <laughs> and does that help conflict go better? No, probably not. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> so I, I really encourage people like look at conflict as a win-win. 
And the fact that this conflict has come up between you and a coworker or you and a customer is a sign that something is off in the relationship. This relationship needs to either grow or end, mm. right? And, and, and it's your choice if you're going to invest in the relationship or if you're going to terminate the relationship. And like, if you have a bad customer who's always like threatening reviews and da, 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 I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take you to the cleaners. You're the worst <laughs> whatever I've ever had. Like, Sounds like the greatest customer ever. Yeah. Right. Then you probably want to terminate this relationship. There's probably not a future. And, yeah. and doing that cleanly and clearly is such a relief. Right. Right. Most of the relationships you want to lean into, right? Most of them you want to stick around with. Yeah, those are good points. And I was even thinking, what if you're in a position where, you know, I've had customers where it's like, hey, buddy, I would love to tell you to go take a hike, but I'm not in that position and I have to, and I have to deal with you and I have to find some common ground here. So if you're not in the position to say, hey, I can, yeah. I can end this relationship, what are some tips or advice you can give for approaching those situations? Well, as an entrepreneur, we all have our less ideal clients, right? And that's a part of developing our practices, getting moving closer and closer to our ideal clients. And, you know, we have some Joe Schmoes in that lineup until we get to the point where like, oh, I get so excited about who I get to work with. And that's, that's the direction we all want to move as professionals. So yes, sometimes you have to take it in the teeth temporarily and smile and play nice and know that, okay, these are the exact patterns and things I don't like about working with this person that I will look for in the future when I do a consultation or an initial reach out. So I make sure that I'm only proposing to people who are my dream clients, right? Like that's that's the direction we all want to go. So in the meantime, with those folks that are just kind of marginal, we still get to use our best skills. We still get to offer them parts of ourselves that we feel good about. And that if they wanted to get stinky about later, we we can walk away with our with our chin held high. Like, okay, well, I I did the best I could, as opposed to, oh, I really hate Joe Schmo. They're just kind of getting my 70%. Right, right. So it sounds like there's some preemptive things we can we can do going into a situation we know might mm-hmm. be a little bit contentious. So kind mm-hmm. of prepare ourselves. Yep. Um, what are what are some some of those things for people to try out? So I talk about it like the phases of basically the conversation. First, there's the setup before the conversation. Then there is the conversation start itself, and then there is the actual conversation and what happens after that. Okay. So the setup to the conversation is you're going to do a little bit of your own work. You're going to decrease your emotions and your charge around it. Sometimes we have somebody that we don't like for no apparent reason. Mm. And, And we don't always know why, like this person reminds us of somebody or looks like something or like for whatever reason, they're just they're not our cup of tea and that's okay. Like if we do a little work and say, wow, there's something about this person that I'm having a reaction to and I can like noodle that out and get clear about what is my reaction going on here? How can I kind of untangle that enough that I no longer have this kind of gut response to them? Visceral reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. we all have those, especially in a pretty big work team. We will find somebody 
who reminds us of our annoying younger brother or whatever, <laughs> and, and we'll act out patterns that have absolutely nothing to do with that person without any conscious awareness. I've heard that a third of the people are going to love you no matter what. A third are neutral and a third just won't like you for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. When I first heard that, I was like, oh, no, I want everyone to love me, of course. But there's just going to be people for, like you said, it doesn't have anything to do with mm -hmm. something you've done or said. It just might be you look like someone and remind you of remind them mm -hmm. of someone they didn't particularly care for. So, yep. And and you you have that in the direction of other people, too. And when you notice it, just be curious about it. Be willing to admit, oh, there might be something that I've done here that could be creating more conflict or more tension with this person than I want. Sure. Take some responsibility in, in yeah. that equation. Yeah. What are some tactical and practical things you can do or one can do to kind of, um, you mentioned the emotional piece of it, which I can relate mm -hmm. to because mm -hmm. I think we've all felt where it's like we're going into this conversation and it's either bracing ourselves, right? Like, oh my gosh, something's going to be attacking me or mm -hmm. we have to come in guns blazing so we don't right. quote unquote lose this, this battle. So right. what, are some, what are some actual things people can do? Well, I've got a great worksheet that I'm going to um, just give you a link for so you can share it with your listeners. And it's basically the difficult conversation flow sheet. Uh, flowchart. So especially those from the tech industry just love it because like, oh, okay, these are the eight steps <laughs> da, 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 yeah. right? to get my head in the game around like, what is it that I need? A lot of times we wait until after our personal boundaries have been violated to have a conversation. And that's kind of on us, honestly. Like if I let you step on my toes and then the third time you step on my toes, uh. I'm like, well, screw you, Emily, blah, 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 blah. And you did not even know I had that, that boundary that you had just crossed. It might mean <laughs> that I need to like get a little clearer. Oh, and what is that boundary? And how could I write that in a way that works for everybody, that I could communicate that to anyone, not just Emily? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, get really cl clarity is key. Clarity so. so that I know what is it I want from this conversation. Okay. So I'm doing the worksheet that decreases my emotional charge, right? The other things I can do in the moment of the conversation is I can make sure that I show up fully resourced. So it's like CPR first aid. You know, you don't enter the scene if it's not safe. If I'm coming in hungry, over caffeinated, and in a rush, <laughs> is this conversation going to go very well? No, it's probably not. Go absolutely terrible. So <laughs> I'm basically going to block off time on my calendar leading up to this conversation. I'm going to take really good care of myself. And then I'm going to ask them about, hey, there's this thing that I really need your feedback on. And I'm going to make it that neutral. I'm not going to like, oh, we need to have this serious talk, Emily. Right. It's like, no, there's this thing I really need your feedback on. And see it as an area of improvement that you're making and investing in yourself. Yeah. How, I'm really interested in the emotional piece because a lot of times, so I've gone into fight or flight and I felt that yeah. in my body where it's like yes. I can feel the adrenaline, my temperature rises, I'm, I'm not thinking clearly. And I've also seen that 
in colleagues where I, I've worked with this person for years and I can tell they have stepped outside of themselves and they are now not in control of what's happening. And uh-huh. it's like, okay, they've gone in survival mode. Yeah. And I felt that. So maybe I, I, I'm happy to uh, share the worksheet. That's going to be fantastic. Maybe you can give us a sneak peek into the emotional piece, how to kind of de-escalate mm-hmm. or defuse mm-hmm. ourselves when we find ourselves in that state. So yes, you're right. Your body will totally override you, right? Your amygdala is going to pump out this this chemical release and adrenaline and cortisol is going to go through your body and and your prefrontal cortex will be spinning 5,000 miles a minute going like, oh, what's the problem? What's the problem? Who's going to kill me, right? And you think that you're thinking because you have rational thought, but it's conspiracy theory rational thought. It's not like calm rational thought. So when you feel that coming on, you can feel your heart rate start to elevate. You feel your breathing start to change. That is not the time to be like starting this conversation, right? You need to like take five steps back, take five minutes away. Um, one of the things that you can do is like even, even before you engage, go and go someplace private. And put a little bit of pressure on your forehead and on the back of your scalp at the Mm. same time, one hand on either spot. Um, Do that for about 30 seconds with some gradually slowed breathing, deep, slow breathing. As you do that, you basically are resetting your body. You're you're telling the, the polyvagal system, oh, I got this. Don't worry, body. I know it feels like I'm about to die, but really it's okay. I got you. Um, and so that takes care of the flooding. The worksheet will help you with the kind of the emotional association or charge related to this other person. And, and also we'll look at what are some of the places that uh, social equity might come into place in this situation, in this conversation. Um, other things that you can do just to reduce the charge is make sure that you have not only not like over caffeinated and not fed yourself, blah, blah, blah. But you've also exercised recently because nervous tension and anxiety will get spent out of our bodies if we're physically active. It's held in your body. Yeah. Even, even 10 minutes of elevated heart rate will discharge a lot of that tension because we don't, like you saw with your colleagues, when that tension comes into the room, when when that that frantic, like, ah, I must have my way right now. I don't know why, you know, (laughs) everybody just like, whoa, take a step back, take a step back. There's no rationing with this person. Once they've reached that point, once fight, flight, freeze takes over, we're worthless for about 20 minutes. You're not yourself. You're literally, you're not your normal self. So, so what I'm hearing is don't, Double fist a Red Bull right before a call. Maybe go for a 10-minute walk. Uh-huh. And then if you can, you know, go in, if you have an office or if you go into the bathroom or whatever, place your palms on you know, the front of your head and the back of your head mm-hmm. and then do some deep breathing. And I've heard when you breathe in and hold it and then make the exhale longer than the inhale, that helps kind of reset yourself too. So am I hearing all those steps right? That's exactly right. I love that that longer exhale. I tell people, do a count on the inhale and double the count on the exhale, whatever that count is. And that usually helps them because they, they don't always get the pacing right when they're stressed. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, those, those are all really great in the moment things. And then overall, like big picture life hacks, regular physical exercise, 
And there's also this thing that I call the green zone. Like when we're in fight, flight, freeze, we don't digest, we we don't reflect, we don't learn new information, we're just in survival mode. But we also have these places in our life that I call green zone. And according to polyvagal theory, that's where you relax and you digest and you can be creative and you can like, you know, kind of like the weekend you just talked about, like when you give that to yourself regularly, when you have a daily practice that you get to enter into this creative or flow state that you just feel really good about yourself, then you're less likely to have everybody's um, tension impact you. You have more reserve, more resiliency, so that when somebody says, hey, Emily, we need to talk about this right now, you're less likely to have this big reaction because you've had this normal place in your body that you reassure it that everything is is peachy, right? What came up for me there is raising the baseline. So you might mm-hmm. have these events, these like single single areas of, of tension maybe, but if you raise the baseline overall where, hey, I'm able to handle these types of things in general better, of course, those events might still have a little blip on the radar, so to speak, but they're not going to be some huge uh, Richter scale, you know, throw you yep. off your game type of thing. Exactly. And people with really stressful jobs sometimes say, well, Christine, I'm doing these things and they're, they're not working. Mm. And um, the sad news is I've seen some people who have already developed patterns related to their stressful jobs that are, it's like too late to like throw in all of these great practices mm-hmm. because they already associate that coworker or that workplace or those regular client interactions with things that are about to kill them. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to, I just want to touch on that. Cause what you said is important. Like understand that when we go in that survival mode, you talked about the amygdala and the way I understand that that's our reptilian brain. So yep. it's literally like stay alive. And your brain in that sense is trying to help you, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's retracting or defaulting to its base survival yep. mode. And the neocortex, which is the part that humans have had layered on where we do our higher level executive thinking and we're in our right mind and ourselves, that part gets shut down. And so when you're only in survival mode, you're not able to make the decisions and you're not able to see things as clearly as you normally do. So for anyone listening, even understanding the biology of what's happening to you in that moment, you're literally, your body is reacting as if uh, some woolly mammoth or some caveman is trying to attack you and kill mm-hmm. you and it's trying to mm-hmm. keep you alive. So in those moments, uh, even just being aware of that, it's still happening to you and it might feel unpleasant. But I think for a lot of people, just even knowing, having that knowledge of, oh, I know what's happening. I can see it. I can feel it for what it is, is helpful. Mm -hmm. And the other thing a lot of people don't know is that if somebody questions your status, your, your, your intelligence, your authority, our body absorbs that as the same as a threat to our lives. Yes. That little little lizard can't tell the difference between, (laughs) you know, I I really think Emily's glasses suck or I really think Emily needs to die. Like our lizard (laughs) is going to respond to those to those stimuli the same way. I've heard that's so interesting. I've heard that um, people's identities have been mixed up with their 
with their uh, actual selves. Mm -hmm. So before, oh, I'm under attack, like me physically is under attack, has become like people get their identity mixed up with that, like my status, my title, my integrity, or my intelligence, uh, excuse me, or whatever. So that's interesting. Right. Yeah. So if you're really associated strongly with what you do for a living, which is true, people who are listening to your podcast are doing that because they are like top of their field, right? They are very Mm -hmm. excited about what they offer the world professionally. Wow, a threat to that feels like sudden death. I mean, you you're going to come out of the, that corner fighting. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And and we've learned about what that cornered animal looks like, and it's not what you want. The other thing that's bad about that cornered animal is that all of your implicit biases, because we all have them, come out. Come out. Oh so boy. Everything you believe about your social standing, about the, your coworkers. All of your embarrassingly unhealed stuff about white supremacy, like all of that crap will come out. And so I, I, I like if, if there are folks listening, they're sitting on the fence about, well, whether or not I should like do this stuff, like that's, <laughs> that's it right there. That's your little motivator to please, please do the stuff. Give yourself the opportunity to have your best self show up. Okay. So we've got a little prep routine and the mm-hmm. steps there, we've got raise your baseline. So do all those yep. things, self-care and, and all that. How do we change from a win-lose dynamic to a win-win dynamic or something else that's better than a I lose or I so win? So we've already kind of set up the, the request of this other person. Hey, Emily, there's something I need your feedback on. Can can I get on your schedule um, maybe in the next couple of days, right? All right. So that seems, that seems pretty like a okay yeah. thing to do. Like that's not too threatening. Um, and now as I look at this conversation, what I'm thinking about is what is it that I most want to come out of this? Okay. So for the last three staff meetings that I have been in with Emily, every time I come up with an idea, it, I feel like she's shooting me down. Right. And I would like to assign some type of intention. I think Emily is getting from me, blah, 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 blah. But I don't know that. So I'm going to go through Christine's stupid worksheet. I'm going to allow for the possibility that maybe she's not getting for me, but that I get to have a clear boundary here. Okay. So I'm going to state what my objective is of this conversation. And my objective is like, I want to be able to get my idea out and have everybody have time to play with the idea before any one person, Emily or otherwise, shoots it down. Yes. Okay. Okay. So that's my so that's my objective. And and Emily's just like a bit player now. It's much more about my boundary. So by the time Emily agrees to like actually talk to me, I'm just gonna say, you know what? I've noticed something about myself in staff meetings and I'm I kind of need your help on this. Ooh, does that sound threatening to you? No, no. Not at all. Because it's all about me. It makes me want to help. Yeah. yeah. I what I'm noticing is I will sometimes put an idea out there. And before it even has a chance to swim around much, it just like it's hitting it, it's hitting some type of wall and it just sinks. And I'm I'm wondering like how do like what do you think I should do? What what would be better there? Can I enlist your help? Like could you maybe help advocate for my ideas a little bit and and or maybe give me some advice? That has such a different feeling to it. Such yeah. a different tone. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I want to break down some of the things I think I heard. One was I heard you ask questions. So mm-hmm. instead of 
directives or statements. It's asking a question. So, hey, can I get some feedback on something was your opening question, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I loved because that's automatically much more inviting than we need to talk, something like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. and, and then it was also that personal responsibility. So, of course, there's lots of people in a team meeting and lots of personalities, but you're focusing on what I've done or what I can do mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. my action and behavior. And then I love what you said at the end, which was another question. Can I enlist your help in this area? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let me know if I heard any of th- those things right. But those all added up to just a much different tone. Yeah. And and if at this point, the person responds like, well, your ideas kind of suck. No wonder why <laughs> they don't go anywhere. Now, now it's personal, right? Like now we have something to work on. Yeah. I, I'm going to go into the conversation assuming that all I need to do is set a boundary and be willing to learn about this other person. And that those are the two most important things that I'm focused on this relationship, having a future that I'm going to actually work side by side with this person again. And for me to do that well, I'm going to have to learn a little bit about them and what makes them tick. I think a huge, two huge takeaways are coming out for me. One is, uh, what are we assuming? Ask -hmm. yourself that. Uh, What am I assuming about any given situation? What am I assuming about any given person? There's always a whole bunch of biases and, you know, inclinations we've thrown on the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the second one that that came out of what you said was be curious. So instead of assuming you know the answer and assuming you have the one right way to solve that, it's really be curious and maybe assume you don't have all the information. Mm-hmm. And oh, I have a lot to learn about this situation. I better go ask some good questions. So what am I curious about? And if you're not curious, if you can't go into the conversation curious and opening like that you're open to learn, then that means you really are not ready for the conversation. Hmm. And when people are asked post difficult conversation, did you feel happy with it? 76% of the people who had a difficult conversation with somebody that they supervised said, yeah, oh. because it was domination. It was uh-huh. not an equal of the people who had not a report to difficult conversation, but just like somebody else in the pecking order, very small or like only like a third of them were happy with it Mm. because they, you know, again, they're seeing it as like, you're talking about like this win lose kind of a thing. Um, So I want people to change their goals. Their goals of a difficult conversation should be, have I increased trust with this person? Is the situation that caused the conversation likely to happen again? And are there good lines of communication? If, if those two, like the trust and the communication have increased and, this, and the likelihood has decreased, then the conflict has been handled, has been resolved. Mm-hmm. And that's different than did I win or did I lose? Right. I've also heard that go, it, this was in a negotiation seminar, but it, you know, when people negotiate in business and in life in general, it's this person is your partner. Like you're trying to get to a resolution mm-hmm. and you're yeah. actually partnering with this person. You're collaborating with this person, how to get there. You obviously have different opinions or ideas, but you're both trying to get to something. Mm-hmm. And, and what they want might look very different than what you want. Oh yeah. And that's okay. And in that same class, I remember it was interesting. They did exercise 
And uh, they did this silly exercise about a, a melon. And people, it was like a watermelon or something. And someone like wanted it for something, their school project, the rinds for, you know, a school project their kid was doing. And someone else needed the seeds. And so we were fighting or negotiating over this melon. And at the end, it was, oh, you didn't go into what was important to the other person. They just wanted the rinds. They just wanted the outside. You wanted the seeds. So you could have said, okay, I'll give you this part of the melon and take, you know, the inside or whatever, but you weren't curious enough and you assumed that right. they wanted the whole thing. And I, I, I always remember that little exercise and that little lesson. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what mm -hmm. do they want? What's important to them? Yeah. And in, in the fake scenario that I made with you and I in the staff meeting, I might've learned that you were really driven by social rewards, that you really wanted to be seen as the person who had the best ideas at the table. Right. And so in our conversation, I might have said, hey, yeah, that idea that you came up with last week, I really liked that idea. I might have like learned all I have to do is stroke your ego a little bit mm -hmm. about how brilliant you are. And then you would have been like a new ally to me in having my ideas have some time out in the swimming pool, right? So it's, yeah, we all have different motivators and, and that's pretty normal. But we assume, especially when we're kind of in that, that frightened state, that everybody feels the way we feel and everybody is suspecting and and conspiring and da -da -da out to get us and like no just no, brings out the worst in us and then we assume the, the worst, worst in other people yeah. but yeah. that motivator piece is so true because i've met met folks um who want things to be their idea and they want to have the credit for everything and, you know, certainly I feel that too, but I'm more than happy. Hey, you know, Sarah's idea was so great. It couldn't, it didn't, it wasn't Sarah's idea, but it was my idea. Sarah's idea was so great. Da, da, da. She's like, oh yeah, da, da, da. Emily is so great in this way. And it's just a back and forth and it just opens mm -hmm. the door because mm -hmm. that's what's important to them. And as long as they have that, they're more than happy to do all these other things. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Once you know what people are motivated by, you totally it use unlocks. it to your advantage. It yeah. unlocks it. Yeah. Are, what are some differences or are there differences about how men and women approach uh, conflict or, or these different situations? Well, I think how we're socialized does play a role. Um, you have to look at workplaces are often set up around kind of the scarcity, um, competition for, for resources kind of model, which is very similar to how men are socialized, right? Um, but as we learned, conflict doesn't work well with that. Like, oh, we're all fighting for the same watermelon, darn it. <laughs> it, it just, it, it actually needs more nuance and more of a sense of like, okay, what motivates you and what, what motivates that other person? And how can we get that together? And, and women are actually socialized generally to be much more collaborative and to be much more of thinking well about everybody, not just ourselves, Right. We're not thinking like, oh, I, the only way I can climb up this ladder is on other people's shoulders, right? Like we um, possibly can be um, a little bit more thinking about others in the group. So I encourage people like, look at that. Don't, don't look at this competition model. Look at the collaboration, the communication, the relationship building model, because that's, that's going to be the most successful in conflict resolution. Okay, so collaboration model, which anyone can can take on, 
mm-hmm. approach things with. Mm-hmm. And then how about you mentioned it a little bit before, but the power dynamic, because these lessons and takeaways are all well and fine until you get into a spot where, hey, I have no power here and this person is in charge and they can control decisions and they can control decisions mm-hmm. about my uh, job status and things like that. So how yes. would you approach those situations? Well, it is kind of back to that CPR first aid. When you feel personally threatened because your paycheck is on the line, you're probably not going to have a good conversation with this person that's higher up in the organization than you are. Um, And I'll never forget, like, I used to run nonprofits for a living. And I had um, somebody who is two rungs below me on the hierarchy ladder um, approach me and ask for a, a conversation about something I had done. And they basically called me to the carpet on something that I did out of out of my out of my internalized superiority and my positional authority and you know some other garbage stuff that I was doing. And they did it in a very loving and consistent way. And did I have to listen to them? No. I was still the boss. In fact, I was their boss's boss. But because they leaned in with an interest in relationship. And they leaned in with an understanding that I could do better, that I was actually a good human and not a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> they invited my better self after I, you know, wasted probably 20 minutes of their time defending and posturing <laughs> and saying, oh, well, it's not like that. And I didn't mean it that way. You guys are being too sensitive. Right. You got it all wrong. Like after all of that fluff, they stuck around and said, we know that you could do better. Wow. We know you have it in you to hold yourself to this higher standard of accountability. And if you can do it, imagine how many people who work here mm. would like would do it too, because you're like the executive director. Wow. That's someone from two quote unquote layers beneath uh-huh. you saying that to you. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow. So so yeah, they were very clear that they had no power. They had very clear, they were very clear that it was my choice. And it it totally changed my perspective on so many things. Wow. And it and and their courage was such a gift to show me that they that they valued this principle higher than they valued their jobs, that they valued this thing that they were advocating for. And in, in this particular case, it was doing really good racial equality within our organization. It was uh, an important hiring decision, right? And totally, I, I think it was just that warmth and that openness and the sense of I'm here for a bigger purpose, something bigger than my paycheck. It's almost like they were connecting to a power, quote unquote, higher than you. So it's like not about this hierarchy we have in this job structure. It's, hey, mm-hmm. this is, this thing over here is actually more important to me and that has the power mm-hmm. or the sway or influence over me. Yeah, yeah, this kind of this, this value or this, uh, you know, integrity kind of decision. If you were to flip, flip it and say mm-hmm. for people who are in leadership positions, and of course they have direct reports and colleagues and people that work for them, um, and there there is a disagreement or conflict of some kind, how would you approach that situation from the position of being the leader? Uh-huh. Yeah, I really encourage people to create feedback circles and loops within every organization. Um, and I'm sure 
you've done that with the clients that you've worked with as well. Because you you can't assume that good information is going to flow up the hierarchy. Nope. Uh, it's just assume it is not. It does not generally because people will act out of that fear. It's very rare what these two employees did at this agency. It's very rare for people to have that level of clarity um, and take that big of a chance. So what you would much rather have is uh, a way for feedback to be generated anonymously and not related to positions of authority and going to ears of people who are impartial <laughs> somehow. And, you know, thanks to the digital age, there's lots of great ways to to collect feedback and to parse out the garbage from, from you know, the ones of people who actually have a message for you. Um, and just really be open to learn. Um, one of the things I did when I was running a shelter for young people who lived without housing was they once a month, you know, we would just serve them breakfast and say, so tell us everything that sucks about the shelter. And we got the best ideas, like almost every program improvement we made for, for like the last four years I was there came directly out of what the shelter guests saw because they were the experts on their experience. Right, right. I mean, who better to, to give you straight up feedback than the people mm -hmm. who are going through that system or that mm -hmm. process? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Okay. No, and I love that because I've done as a leader, I I don't like criticism as much as the next person, but I do want to get better as a leader. So I've done the 360 feedback mm -hmm. loops where people mm -hmm. ask your boss, your peers, and then people who work for you, and they're collected by a third party or an anonymous um, yep. an anonymous way. And then the the feedback is is uh, collected and given back to me. And some of the things, most of the things were like, yep, I had a sense of that. Yes, I know I have to work on that. Okay, I do do well at that. There's always some surprises in there. There's always some gems, both directions where it's like, oh, I didn't know that I was, I was making that face and people were taking it that way in the team meeting. And on the other side, it was, oh, I didn't know that when I said this, that meant something to someone. I, I just took that for granted. That was, you know, me saying an offhanded comment, but it meant so much to someone. So, uh, yeah, Christine, I would, I would encourage anyone to, to get that kind of feedback in some fashion or another. It can only help you. It can only help you. Yeah. Excellent. Sure. All right, Christine, you mentioned the worksheet. We'll definitely have that in the show notes. Um, if people want to know more about you or what you do and how you can help, where can they reach you? Uh, I am at www.seattleconflictresolution.com. Uh, they can find me there. Um, and I would also like your listeners to know that I am soon to launch an interactive training video. So I'm really excited about a way for people, even if their employer doesn't hire me to come in and work with their whole team, there will now be a way for them to go to my website and actually buy a one-hour um, video experience that you will learn what your conflict style is and work on some of those kind of those myths that you have around conflict and get better at it. Oh, wow. I've never heard of that. All right. So check that out. Go to Christine's website and check that out up and coming. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being on. I learned a lot from this conversation and I'm sure the listeners did too. So thanks again for being on. Thank you, Emily. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.